epistle lesson this morning is Romans chapter 12, reading verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we come this morning, we confess that we are poor and that we are needy. We are reliant upon you. It is only in your light that we see light. And so we come asking God that you lead and guide us into all truth by your spirit. And so speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. From 1977 to 1983, George Lucas produced three films that were the beginning of the Star Wars franchise. Perhaps like myself, for many of you, it was the first movie you ever took in in the theater, and it was awesome. Film companies wanted actually little to do with it. They thought Lucas was kind of out there with his idea, and they didn't think much would come of it. But it quickly became the highest grossing movie in the history of movies at that time, replacing the movie that was just in front of it, the reigning champion, Jaws. The movies were popular, and they remain popular today. Still is popular amongst kids and adults. It has achieved something like a cult-like following. And then it wasn't done. The franchise wasn't finished. From 1999 to 2005, another trilogy came out, and it was detailing the history that preceded the original trilogy. And then they were not done from there. From 2015 to 2019, the final three films were released to finish up the entire story. Now nine movies and even others that were made. It's the legacy of these final three films, what is called the sequel trilogy, if you're an insider. But that legacy is somewhat of a mixed bag. Some critics love them, believing that this final trilogy brings a fresh new face to the franchise of Star Wars. And others find them despicable and believe that the entire integrity of the franchise has been lost. Some of the longest monologues I have ever been subjected to have been in people asserting their opinions about the quality of these last three films and whether they carry on the legacy or whether they sacrifice the legacy. And my using this as a sermon illustration is not an invitation for your opinion following the service. I have to confess, I don't care. I love the first three films and the rest of it was fine. But as we get to Romans 12 this morning, what's important for us is that this third and final section of this long letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome, this young church in the middle of the first century, it's important for us to recognize that the legacy of these last four chapters has also been contested. Some think that these chapters are just an appendix where Paul is cleaning up everything that he just needed to say to them, and that these last four chapters 
are really disconnected from the theological heart of the letter, of everything that has been said for the first 11 chapters. We've taken months to work through those first 11 chapters, seeing the grandeur of the grace of God and the majesty of who God is and what he's accomplished in Jesus. And so some just think this is just the cleanup, and it's really not that important. It's unrelated to the substance of the letters. Others think that these chapters are the most important and the most significant, that you can really just ignore the rest of it, especially that difficult bit there from chapters 9 through 11. Just look past it. Don't preach on it. Don't talk about it. And then you get to the meat here where Paul decides to get practical and finally say something about real life. And so here's the question. What is the legacy What exactly are we to do with Romans 12 through 16, and how are we to think about it? The criticisms and the accolades of these chapters can be overstated, much like the Star Wars movies. They are neither the most important section of the letter, nor is it just a flimsy appendix. Rather, what we have here is a continuation of Paul's argument. He uses the conjunction, therefore, Something is being concluded. A consequence is being announced. Something is continuing. An argument that began all the way back in chapter 1. And so this isn't just something flimsy. It's also not something more important. It is just a continued, sustained argument. And he's drawing all of that argument to a conclusion. It follows from everything that has gone before. And so today we're going to slow down, though at these pivotal verses where Paul is turning and we're going to work our way through these two verses that introduce this whole next section that is about the Christian life. Because it serves not only as an introduction to this next section of the letter, but it's also a programmatic statement that for you and for me can have a framing element for helping us understand what the Christian life is all about because if we want to understand the goal of Christianity these two verses are essential for reading and for contemplation even helpful for memorization and then we'll see three things this morning about the Christian life the first thing that we'll establish is the motivation of the Christian life and then we'll consider the mode the manner of the Christian life and finally we'll look at the means of the Christian life. That is how it works out. So briefly ahead of the Lord's table, let's look at each of these this morning. First, the motivation of the Christian life. Now, as a young college student, I was eager to serve God. My heart had been awakened along with several other of my peers at Furman University in that spring semester of 1995, and I remember wanting to learn and wanting to serve and being eager to get past kind of a shallow, superficial Christianity that I myself had lived out at my own fault. And so I was ready to go out and change myself, and I was ready to go out and change the world. And so as part of this, I joined a Bible study with several other guys who had that same kind of zeal. There wasn't much knowledge connected to it. And so we began reading books, and one of the books we picked up was one that maybe is known to you is by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness. 
It was the first book that Bridges had published in 1978, and it detailed about how we were to be rigorous in the pursuit of holiness and move past hypocrisy. I devoured it. After eating that book, decided to take down another one. It was Bridges' second book, published in 1983, and it was titled The Practice of Godliness. And each chapter was on a virtue that you were to give yourself to in the practice of godliness. And so we all decided one summer that we were going to take one chapter and master that virtue. I don't believe any of us took on humility. I was working as hard as I could, along with Jerry Bridges' help, of course, to perform well for Jesus. There was a sincere motivation, but there was also something hollow and devastating going on at the same time. I was trying to pursue holiness. I was trying to practice godliness, but I found myself demotivated. I found myself flat. And overall, I found myself feeling incredibly guilty because gradually I began to spiral downwards in which there was a lack of any pursuit. There was a lack of holiness. There was a lack of practice and there was a lack of godliness. And so what was I supposed to do? Being somewhat a good student, I went to go buy a book. I went to the local Christian bookstore that used to be a thing. And I began walking up and down the aisles, just seeing what was recommended. And there was a bright red cover with yellow lettering. I still remember it. And I read the words, transforming grace. And then I saw the author's name, Jerry Bridges. And I said, oh no, <laughs> no more of this. <laughs> the fruit from the first two books had not been too sweet. And so was I really gonna buy another book by Jerry Bridges? As I made my way up and down, nothing else really caught me, and so I was drawn in by the marketing, and so I opened Transforming Grace. And I looked at the first pages, the introduction, and he used an illustration, and he said, so many of us feel like we've been on a treadmill trying to gain God's favor and approval, to experience his love by being zealous for him. And then he exposes himself to self-critique, and he says, I've been on a journey myself publishing first this book in 1978 and second this book in 1983 and now in 1991 he was publishing transforming grace i bought transforming grace and i've never regretted it because it was there that i met god in a way that i really needed to at that moment in my life i was awakened to something it was something that i knew in a certain way you see, I had memorized Romans 12, 1 through 2. I had learned a different version. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And I was awakened to that phrase, by the mercies of God. And I realized that my entire focus had been on the living sacrifice part. And we were all trying to outdo one another to see who could best one another at being a better living sacrifice. That was somewhat of our goal and mantra. But here I was, flat and demotivated, empty and deflated, recognizing that I had no real strong motivational basis for my Christian life except my pride. 
But here's something else was being offered. I urge you, therefore, brothers, brothers, by the mercies of God or because of the mercies of God, on the basis of the mercies of God. And so the appeal to be a living sacrifice, the appeal to follow after God, the appeal to Christian discipleship, the appeal to the Christian life was rooted in these mercies that God had already given me in Jesus. There wasn't something that I was trying to obtain. There wasn't something that I was trying to earn. But rather, the way that God was calling me and the way that he is motivating you is by reminding you of the grace that already belongs to you through his son, Jesus. In other words, my obedience wasn't winning God over and getting him to love me. No, my obedience was a response of gratitude to a grace that had overwhelmed me. This is what I was learning, and it was a grace that I couldn't improve on, that I couldn't better. We've seen throughout the book of Romans that that grace, that mercy of God, that it's rich and it's full. And when Paul says here, by the mercies of God, he is referring to all of that grace and all of that mercy that we've read about from chapters 1 through chapter 11. This mercy includes the forgiveness of your sins in which we recognize that God sent his son Jesus. And Jesus went and stood in our place on the cross and he paid the debt that we owed. And he paid it on our behalf. And then he rose from the dead and that when we place our faith in him, his death becomes our death and his life becomes our life. And now rather than being unrighteous in front of God, we're counted righteous. Not because of anything we've done, but purely because of our standing in Jesus. And so this is the first grace that we encountered in the book of Romans as we work through chapters 3 and 4 and into 5. And then in chapter 6, we learned that not only have we been granted that righteous status in front of God because of Jesus, but also that we've been freed from the controlling power of sin, that God has done something else for us, that God frees us to then walk out of Egypt the Egypt of our own making, the chains that we have enslaved ourselves in. He breaks those chains and points us in the direction of the promised land that this God is doing for us in his grace and in his mercy. We find that in chapter 6 and chapter 7, even speaking about the struggle of the Christian life. And then in chapter 8, we get this glorious picture of what God will do for us in Christ. Not only something he has done, not only something he is doing, but something he will do. Future tense, where God speaks of the day in which he'll liberate all of creation. And the sons and the daughters of God, that creation is on tiptoe, awaiting the day of our resurrection. When our bodies are reconstituted, and we are made whole, and we are made new. And we inhabit a creation free from the stain and the pollution of sin. And the world is restored to what it was always intended to be. Romans 9 through 11, we learn of the mysterious counsel of God. That in his free grace, that grace might be grace. 
He chooses us. He singles us out. He makes us his own. And all of this to the praise of his glorious grace, because from him and to him and for him are all things we saw last week at the end of Romans 11. But friends, the motivation of the Christian life, how you wake up in the morning and how you then derive energy to continue in the service of God, it's rooted there in all of that grace, what he has done for you, what he is doing in you, what he will do for you, that that's the basis. That's the motivation that undergirds everything about being a living sacrifice. And so hold fast to that motivation. Don't try to substitute another one. It will only end in devastation and despair and frustration and spiritual flatness. But it is in returning to this grace and absorbing the full panorama of that grace, past, present, and future, that we find a lively fund, a fund that gives us life, a fund that nurtures us and compels us forward. Hold fast to that motivational basis. But the second thing Paul takes us into is not only the motivation of the Christian life, but also the mode or the manner of that life. And this is where we arrive at the phrase to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul here picks up on the imagery and the language of the Old Testament sacrificial system. And it's important because he is appealing to us that that sacrificial system has been fulfilled in and through Jesus. And that something has happened and we are now called to do one thing. We are called to present ourselves, our bodies, that is just your entire being, body and soul, heart, mind, strength and hands, everything that you are. We are called to present ourselves to God as a living sacrifice and that this task is spiritual worship. And so what we learn here is it's not as if in the Christian life we're free to just do whatever we want to do. No, God doesn't give you that permission to just do whatever you want to do. He also doesn't give you permission to live with this superficial veneer of holiness or godliness by observing some external rules of conformity. No, we are to offer everything that we are. Everything that we are in our bodies, everything that we are as human beings, we are to lift up and to offer to God. And this sacrifice is to be motivated by that grace of God, by all that he has done, by all that he is doing, by all that he will do. But as you think about that, as you think about presenting yourself to God as a sacrifice, and if you could conceive of every morning rising and recognizing that the mercies of God are new with you each and every day, and then to ask God for the grace that you would present yourself to him that day, on this day, as a living sacrifice. There's something critical to recognize about the language here. John Calvin points this out for us in his Institutes in Book 3 and Chapter 7. Because what's important to recognize about the language is that we're not being asked to consecrate ourselves 
to be an offering. No, the sacrificial system, when something made it to the altar, it had already been consecrated. It had already been set apart. It had been constituted as something that was going to be used for a holy purpose. And what Paul is saying is that you have already been consecrated. You have been dedicated. You have been devoted. And friends, you've been devoted, dedicated, and consecrated by Jesus in all that he's done for you. And he has prepared you and set you apart now for this joyless privilege of spiritual sacrifice, of offering yourself as a living sacrifice in spiritual worship. And so we're to live in a manner that corresponds to what God has done for us and what God is doing in us in Jesus. And so what does this mean for you? What it means for you and for me is that we're not our own. We don't belong to ourselves. We belong to God. We've been devoted. We've been consecrated. We've been set apart. God has made that determination about you, whether you feel that way or not today. He has already made that determination. And now, friends, for us to fight with that determination means that we'll only do so at our own cost. Listen to what Calvin says. He says, a sacred thing may not be applied to profane uses without marked injury to itself. And sometimes you may wonder about the great frustrations of the Christian life and some of those demotivating moments. My suspicion about myself and my encouragement to you to think about is does that great demotivation come because of a marked injury to ourselves? Because we have determined ourselves for another purpose when God has determined us for living sacrifice and we choose to go our own way. That our great freedom and privilege is in this direction and we choose to go in another direction. But this is what you have been now created to be in Christ, living sacrifices. And so the appeal is to go with the grain of what God is doing in your life. That the grain is living sacrifice. That's what he's devoted and consecrated you for. And that's the mode, the manner of the Christian life. And finally, as we work into verse 2, we find the means of the Christian life. And that is just how the mode gets applied. Paul writes this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's interesting that the language of the mind comes back up because this is not the first time that we've seen it in the book of Romans. And when he uses the word mind, he's not just inviting you to learn theology. We'll get further into that in a moment. But if you harken back to chapter 1, you remember that human beings, because they refused to worship and serve the Creator, were turned over and their minds were subjected to darkness and to futility, and the mind became debased. That's not just speaking about a few human beings, but every one of us. 
We are all subjected to that. And that our mind directs and guides us. And so our whole humanity is corrupted by the decaying power of sin. And that was a result because we wanted to be like God. We were told not to eat of the fruit of one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And our first parents, when they ate from that tree, this was not a simple act of gluttony, as if they just couldn't get their appetites under control, and they really just needed to go to Weight Watchers. This is not what's going on. It's not facile. What's happening here when they eat that fruit is they are rebelling against God, not just breaking a rule, but they're announcing that they want to be the arbiters of what is good and what is evil, that they want to be the judge of good and evil. They want to be the ones who define what is right and what is wrong, that they want to be the ones that define reality inside of God's creation to say this is that and this is that. That is what the human condition under sin is. Whatever dress it perhaps chooses to wear, whether religious or irreligious, it always looks like that. Us defining by our own values and by our own measures the reality around us. And friends, this is what we have been given over to, every one of us. It is a mind that operates autonomously from God. But now for the Christian, something has happened. Paul indicates that something has happened to us for those who are in Jesus. That is that our old mind, we have been set free in some measure from because he commands us, do not be conformed to this world. That is to the old pattern of thinking that's dark and debased and lost but be transformed in your mind. And he's indicating that this is a process and that we are, we are that community of Israel walking out of Egypt. And friends, it's hard for us and it's demanding because our minds have been so deeply shaped by that experience of being in our first parents, in Adam, that we had darkened minds and God is now shedding light. And so he can command us to not be conformed, to be transformed in our minds. And this is the great task and the means of the Christian life in which we're constantly seeking this over and over again and again, that we're asking God to lead us and to guide us and to renew our minds. And yes, this involves learning. It involves taking in theology and scripture, and it involves prayer, and it involves community and discussion with friends. It involves making decisions and setting priorities. It involves applying God's truths to everyday situations in life. And this is where Paul goes in the second half of the verse. By the renewal of your mind, that by testing, you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Many people ask the question, what does he mean there? He says, discerning the will of God. Isn't the will of God known to us? Yes, the general precepts of the will of God are known to us. They're revealed throughout the scriptures, but especially in places like the Ten Commandments. 
the challenge that you face and that I face is the one that we meet every day where we have to take those general precepts and we have to put them in the situations of life. Because let's be honest, when God instructed Israel, do not covet, Israel was wandering through the desert and they did not have to encounter some of the things that we encountered and they also encountered some things that we didn't. But in some ways the world is different and in some ways the world is the same. And so we have to take that general precept and we have to ask God to lead us and to guide us into all truth, to know how to apply and work it out so that we can discern what is good and acceptable and perfect, that we work out the will of God in our lives. Because Israel didn't have to encounter social media. And as they thought about the command not to covet, they didn't have to think about all the comparisons that take place. As we look at the feeds of others and have to glean through them and see manicured lives or look at Pinterest and see all the pictures that people put forward about how perfect their lives are. And then we sit there and compare and covet and we think, man, if I only had that, I would be so much better. And then we get off social media and we're absolutely exhausted and worn out by the process. And we think, yes, I'm going to go do that again. But friends, we have to think rigorously about what it means to take the will of God that has been revealed. Thinking rigorously about what it is then to apply it. What all the commandments mean, not just the one about coveting, and what it means to do so in the here and now. Not just then and there as Israel wandered through the desert, but here and now, what does it mean to listen to God's voice? And to be then those actors of what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is the means of the Christian life to seek God for the renewal of the mind so that we not continue in the ways of conformity with where we were because we recognize that we've been freed and that we have this glorious motivation a motivation that's grounded in the grace of God, rich and free, that extends into eternity past and reaches into eternity future, that is grounded in the death and resurrection of Jesus that cancels out sins, that frees us from the controlling power of sin and allows us to walk out of Egypt, that guarantees us a life in the world to come that is free from the stain of sin. It's the motivation. And then we have the mode of that life, of offering ourselves as living and holy sacrifices because we've been dedicated and consecrated and set apart and that this is our privilege now to live in this way, corresponding with the grace of God and that we have the means of seeking God for the renewal of our minds, that he free us from the darkness and that we live with a conscious awareness and humility of all the faults that live within and that the fingers of accusation always point inward and that we're seeking God to lead us and guide us into the application of his will into what is good and acceptable and perfect in the concrete situations that you and I meet every day and in all of their complexity. Friends, this is the direction of the Christian life, motivated by the grace of God given over to these means, sustained by that mode. And so let's ask God this morning for his help 
to live that out. Father, this morning we come before you and offer our prayers, not because we are deserving, but purely because of your grace. And we're reminded of your high calling to live as living in holy sacrifices, but yet we're more deeply reminded of your grace and your mercy that exceeds all of our understanding and sustains and motivates that calling. Drive that deeply home in us today. And may we be overwhelmed by grace and mercy in such a way that being living sacrifices joyous and that we not be conformed but be transformed by the renewing of our minds to know your will and how to work it out in the concrete circumstances of our lives. Give us help, God. We confess that we need it. Father, this morning we're also mindful of our world. It is a world that has been subjected to futility and decay, and we're reminded that in the grief and the sadness of this week. The losses endured, and also the deteriorating situation in Afghanistan. And God, we ask that you would have mercy. Words are difficult to find for the sadness of this country and this nation, the anger and the violence, the hatred. And God, we ask that you bring light and life through the gospel. We ask that you would free the peoples of this nation, that they would rejoice and be glad and they would shout for joy, knowing that equity and justice and righteousness comes in the true son, Jesus. Protect your people who are huddled there in fear sustain them, grant them safety, provide every one of their needs. We're grateful for their witness, God, and may they continue to have courage and strength to offer that witness. We're mindful of our own mission partners here who serve alongside of us, Reform Theological Seminary in Orlando, and their work to train and to educate hearts and minds, preparing men and women for ministry. God, we ask that as the year begins, that the student body would be full and bright and ready to run to your truth and study and to prepare for lifelong ministry. Help them as they navigate all the difficulties of COVID-19, give them wisdom in their exercises, and God, we pray that you would send out men and women into the harvest field from the seminary. And Lord, we pray for Carol Arnold, and we thank you for her long service alongside her husband, Jack, and the many years that they've given to the church. And as Carol continues alone, God, we ask that you would sustain her and that you would continue to use her to bear fruit as she teaches, instructs pastors and wives about godly marriages and what it means to live together with one another in peace. And so bless her and her work. And Father, we're mindful of our own need for help and for safety, for protection. We live and we move and we have our being in you. We're frail and we're but dust. And so we come to you as those frail creatures and ask that you sustain us. 
keep us from arrogance and pride. We would be humble and dependent. And Lord, we ask that you would keep us not only in body, but especially in soul, that we trust you through every season of life, including this confusing season of a global pandemic. Sustain us, God. And we especially pray this morning for our sick and our suffering in our congregation. God, we ask that you would draw near, that you will grant them comfort, and that you will provide every one of their needs. We ask for healing and for strength. But God, we pray especially that you strengthen their souls, that they entrust themselves to you and know that you will never leave them, you will never forsake them, that even in the valley of the shadow of death, it is there that you are with them. Your rod and your staff provide them comfort, and so comfort them, God, according to your promise. And so we pray for Barb Day, and we pray for Louis Fosnick. We pray for Sue Forsyth, and we pray especially for Elizabeth Garnett. Pray for Gar Garganius. We pray for Hector and Viona Harima. We pray for Wayne Noble, Sandy Reynolds, and for Jules Smith. Cheer the hearts of your saints, God. Give them comfort according to your grace. And Father, this morning we also remember our children. And we thank you for your promises to them. We thank you for filling our church with them. And God, we ask that you would continue to give us grace to be faithful to that stewardship of caring for them and directing them to your son, Jesus. And so will they, as they are taught his truths, may they never remember a day apart from him, that with a lively and motivated faith that knows all of your grace, that they would freely offer themselves to you as living and holy sacrifices. May that be their privilege and their freedom and their joy. Free them from conformity to this world and all of its disordered loves. And transform their minds to think your thoughts. Give each of them grace, God. Bless them as they grow up in this church. All these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.